Hello, class, and welcome to the Sex Nerd Sonder podcast. This episode is sponsored by AdamandEve.com. You go there and you type in Sex Nerd at checkout, and you will get free shipping, 50% off almost anything in that store. You get three free DVDs and a super secret gift. That is a fantastic deal, especially during the holidays. And speaking of the holidays, guess what? I went onto the website and they have a glass candy cane dildo perfect for stuffing your stockings right. And just so you know, stuffing your stockings is a metaphor I use all year round, not just during the holidays. So go to adamneve.com, type in sex nerd at checkout and get that free shipping on that candy cane or similar 50% off almost anything in the store. Free shipping. Did I already say that? Ah, thanks. Uh, free DVDs and a super secret gift. Oh, you guys. Now entering Nerdist.com Welcome to the Sex Nerd Sandra Podcast. Whoa, what are these kids doing in here? Hey, if you're under 18, go ask your mom. Now that we're alone, let's start the show. Hum when I'm excited. I do. And I'm excited about this week's episode. Um, it is the Washington, D.C. live show, which was so great. And the questions from the audience were fantastic. Uh, so much so that I actually split the episode in two. So you have some goodies this week and next week. And it's all pretty freaking awesome. Um, I wanted to take a minute and just double check. Have you gone to sexnerdsandra.merchtable.com? If you haven't, I've got t-shirts and totes there for sale. Um, people have been buying them a bunch for the holidays. So just heads up in case you have a sex nerd uh, in your life that you want to get something for or yourself. Hey, treat yourself. You deserve it. Uh, this show is was so much fun, and I have to just thank my guests real quick um, because we get right into it once we transition over to the live recording. Uh, Dr. Kate Frank, she rocks. She wrote the book, Plays Well in Groups, colon, A Journey Through the World of Group Sex. Hey. And Dr. Jamie Lawson, he's at Dr. Lawson on Twitter, D-R-L-A-W-S-O-N. And there's a link there to participate in his sex and gender study. He's over in the UK, and he kind of reminds me of David Tennant. <sighs> anyway, um, and Sean Westfall, he's a DC improv instructor uh, at Sean Westfall, S-H-A-W-N Westfall on Twitter. And I want to just apologize because the mic, there was a little bit of a, a mic hot potato going on because there weren't enough mics for the number of people on stage. And two, uh, my mic was a bit hot, so I get a little distorty sometimes and we tried fixing that in post, as you do. Um, but, you know, the life of a podcaster technology, all that. Uh, I love you guys. Hugs, etc. So I hope you enjoy part one of the Washington, D.C. episode at Busboys and Poets. <laughs> all right. Okay, so I want to introduce you our comedian for the evening, just an improv guy who's around town, and like I heard rave reviews of how just what a lovely human being he is. So Sean Westfall, improv extraordinaire, teacher, humanitarian, philanthropist. Hi. Hi. How are you doing, Sandra? Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. I thought I'd go over there. I'm already already messing up the the podcast. Apologies oh, for that. <laughs> I fully embrace slapstick. Fully embrace it. 
I love when people fall off beds. That's my favorite. <laughs> so you didn't do that yet, so that's cool. Oh, um, but yeah, Sean, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. I'm honored to be a part of the Sex Nerd Podcast, very much. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So what do you do around town here? Um, uh, uh, by day, I work in advertising. At night, uh, I am the exclusive, and I stress that word, exclusive teacher of improvisational comedy at the DC Improv. I'm teaching there for 10 years. So if uh, any of you want to come, come learn to make crap up, please, by all means, come take a class with me. So. I have a question. Sure. Because I've noticed, and, and I do uh, have some friends in the DC improv scene, mm-hmm. is that a lot of people who study improv in this town aren't actually like, aspiring to be great actors or anything, but they really just, like, they have these day jobs, and then they want to kind of explore improv it in the evening. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I actually get a lot of lawyers, because, hey, it's Washington, D.C. There's a lot of lawyers in this town. And I, yes, yes, clap for lawyers, for God's sake. <laughs> No, you guys are billing at six-minute increments. For God's sakes, clap for yourself. Um, and, and that's precisely why they come take my class, because they, they are billing at six-minute six increments. Uh, they, their jobs are terrible, and they come to my class, and they get to laugh and relax for two and a half hours a, a week. Uh, it's, it's cheaper than therapy, I've been told. So, uh, nice. so that's, that's why they come there. So. Do you feel like improv helps people in their love lives? Um, funny you should ask. Um, uh, about about uh, five years ago, I started noticing a trend among my students. I was getting a lot of young men, and I sort of like, oh, that's good. a lot of. And again, normally young men are attracted to comedy, so it didn't make. But a lot of them who didn't seem to have any um, um, acting background or any aspirations toward comedy, but they wanted to learn to be more in the moment. And and after, upon further investigation, I learned. That a lot of the uh, um, uh, pickup artists, uh-huh. the, the PUA guys, were telling young men in their workshops and classes to take improvisational comedy, to learn to be more in the moment when they approached women in public spaces, in bars, and etc. So, uh, so yeah, the, uh, okay. I, apparently it does, according to, to, to the pickup artists. So, okay, I heard a uh, like sound, which I mean. I know the pickup artist community gets a lot of flag, yeah. which they kind of deserve a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. And they help people. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the thing. <laughs> they help my classes, first and foremost. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm grateful for them. So. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. It's, but, I mean, I think so many people don't know how to be loose, like, right. relaxed on a date. Exactly. Or, you know, when they're, right. they're into something. Like, they freeze up and they don't even want to do. Exactly. And just the, like, throwing yourself into the abyss of improv just you, seems perfect for love and you, sex. You, you, and, and, and there actually is, a, like, a... a um, uh, so, one of the things that, that, that pickup artists tell their students to do... I'll, I'll just pull back the curtain on that entire culture... Um, yeah, sure, why not? You're safe here. Oh, thank you. We're, we won't uh, tell anyone. Um, um, so there's this, there's this thing, and maybe, maybe anyone who's taken a pickup artist workshop can, can, can verify this, but there's this thing called the three-second rule. Has anyone heard of this? Which is, if so you're out with your friends and you see an attractive person that you'd like to approach, um, what, what they essentially say is, do it. Don't even think. Just go, walk up and just say anything, right? Just walk up and approach someone and say, Oh, hey, the, man, the, the Redskins lost today, or whatever. Just, just, and it doesn't have to be that concrete in the moment. And, of course, that's actually what I tell my students to do. Just when they get on stage, they're sort of thinking about all the things they have to say, and they actually end up talking themselves out of it in the same way that pickup artists would say young men talk themselves out of walking over and approaching a woman. And, and they said, nope, just walk over, grab the moment, seize the moment, carpe diem, do it. 
And I essentially teach my students to do the same thing. Don't worry, don't think, just walk out, make a choice at the top of an improv scene. The rest will take care of itself. And the rest takes care of itself. You're right here, so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I only slightly trust that advice. <laughs> well, okay. Mm. I mean, like, definitely when I'm in like bravery mode, like I'm going to be the most ridiculous at this party. I'm just right. going to be ridiculous. Right. Like I don't have nothing to lose. Like, will I see any of you again? Maybe. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, just the goofiness of it. Well, I guess this is an awkward... That's awkward because you listen to the show. Okay, don't judge. Um, but I was terrible at improv. Like, the worst. I was the I, worst person. I don't person. believe that for a second. Ooh. I don't believe it. Um, well, you are uh, wrong. <laughs> uh, no, I was the worst because I was so in my head. But the thing about improv is you need to, like actually makes sense within the scene mm-hmm. and I get so nonsensical that it just makes no like right. I just can't even I'm just right. like whoa right. elephants and <laughs> things like do the worm you know I don't even so I don't know right. but for most people I think that would be fine it's, it seems like a lot of fun my, cl- my classes are, are filled but you, I, again if take a class if you're interested and find out more about this weird geeky culture that that, that, uh, that, that, imp- that improv is so. yeah it's yeah. pretty cool Sean, are you ready to get into it? Uh, I am always ready to get into it, yes. Absolutely. Yes? Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Team, team ready. You want, we're ready. Okay. All right. Guys. Okay, so I studied anthropology in college, and I, didn't, I ended up doing philosophy and going to broadcast journalism and all these different things. Um, I have for you guys tonight a biological anthropologist... In this very room, he has flown in from the UK. He he has studied so many things, including mate selection and science, so much science. And one of those things where at conferences when you meet people and you're like, what do you do? Oh my God, you do so many things. Your brain! Um, Dr. Jamie Lawson, come on up. Look at the cutie that's walking to the stage. He's got a PhD. (laughs) Objectifying! I've had so many awkward moments where guests objectified me that now it's like... That's fine. You can objectify me. (laughs) Evening. Hi, say hi. Oh, so you're safe here. Thanks. Welcome. Thank Welcome you. To I feel America. safe. <laughs> Have you ever been to the U.S. before? Yeah, some time ago. Last time I was in uh, uh, Colonial Williamsburg. <laughs> <laughs> that was about seven years ago. That was weird. <laughs> Why is Williamsburg a funny thing here? I don't know what that means. Like, everyone's like, ha ha. It's a city. I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, go, really. It's great. It's like it's this okay. nice little town. It's all sort of nice and suburban and lovely, and it's got nice um, flower baskets and things, and it's lovely. And then you turn a corner, and the pavements are gone, and there's crushed shells instead of sidewalk pavement. Sorry, sidewalk. Um, and there's people in colonial dress, like period costumes. Oh, one of those places. Yeah. Right. And with no sense of humor. Right. Like, they, 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 they don't break character no, at all. Not at all. Not at all. Your cell phone no goes off. No sense of irony. It's like, none whatsoever. Oh, no. yeah. Yeah. And your, 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 your cell phone goes off, and they go, what is that contraption? That you're hmm. talking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How funny. Yeah. It was weird. <laughs> Yeah. I want a sarcastic version of that where everyone's totally <laughs> sassy while they're doing this. Like, can't we that's have like written. a funnier? Come to oh, that's how it's written. Uh, um, so, can I call you Jamie? What should I call you? Uh, Jamie's fine. Yeah. Yeah. What's your official? Doc- Doctor Jamie Lawson. 
Dr. Jamie Lawson. I'm feeling very Doctor Who with you. I'm getting a very Doctor Who vibe. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Yeah? Oh, me? No, just here. Here, I get that. Oh, really? Monty Python. People keep talking to me about Monty Python. Monty Python? Yeah. Who are you in Monty Python? No, they just keep talking to me about it as if I'm British. I must understand the references. (laughs) Oh. Huh? So. And someone yells out a Monty Python reference. Oh, that's interesting. So, tell tell us a little bit about what you studied, okay. um, like where you studied to get your PhD, and then now I mean, you've been teaching for four or five years. Four or five years, yeah. And then and then you're the research that you're embarking on right now. So, sure. uh, so yeah, I'm um, my training's in biological anthropology, which I think you call physical anthropology over here for reasons. Um, evolutionary anthropology, I suppose. So I look at human behaviour from an evolutionary perspective. Um, and my PhD was in looking at human mating behaviour, how people choose the mates they have, um, what people like in faces. I don't know, you've probably seen this stuff online. I was one of the guys who generated artificial faces and <gasps> showed them to people and said, do you like this? Um, <laughs> or do you like this version of this? Um, that sort of thing. And asked people really, really intrusive questions about their sex lives, which was fun. Um, and made me good fun at parties, apparently, um, and things like that. So that was good. Uh, and then I got my PhD in that subject up in the University of St. Andrews, which is in Scotland. Anybody? Oh, is that a woo for Scotland? Or a woo for St. Andrews? Okay. Or is it a... There's golf in St. Andrews. It's a tiny, tiny town with literally three streets in it. Three streets. And you're surrounded by the sea and there's no way to get out. And I had a bit of a nightmare, but... <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> um, so is there... And now I teach anthropology at the University of Durham in the northeast of England. Excellent. Well, it's highly impressive. Very <laughs> impressed. Thank like, you. So, wait a minute. We were talking about animal sex. Like, like what is that, brunch today or at lunch? I think lunch? so. I've Are talked we, about like, a lot of things over the last few days. You know, in a giant room full of sex people. And then <laughs> we're just talking about penguins and things. Um, penguins. Because the thing is, is, I'm all like, yo, biological anthropologist, tell me everything. Like, meat selection, what's the deal? And he's all like, ugh, like... People like symmetry. People like smiling. <laughs> Boring. And I was like, why well, I mean that? Like, you were so bored by the topics that I would think would be interesting. Like, why so bored? <laughs> why so bored? It's like these are the things that people know, I think. People like... Um, so I was in the field of evolutionary psychology, which looks at what people do. And people like good-looking people. And that's not a surprise. <laughs> so you make a good-looking face, people like it. And then we find that symmetry is um, attractive and things like femininity attractive. But people know this stuff. So, I'm like, I so it's kind of uh, saturated the, the mainstream. I think so. And then as people know, people understand that uh, masculinity is attractive sometimes. People start to sort of change their behavior. And then we have to explain a new thing. And that's, that's annoying. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, so what, tell, what, what do you mean by... I'm, I'm going to go back to the obvious stuff that you are bored by. Um, oh, cool. What, what, do you, what, what does symmetry look like? Uh, if you can describe it for people. And, and, and why is it attractive? I mean, <laughs> I mean exactly. Right, right, yeah. right. So exhibit A is right here next to me, of course. Yeah. So if you imagine like there's a straight line down the middle of your face and you've got all these features on either side. Actually, it goes right down your body. So humans are... Like symmetrical, mm-hmm. we're bilaterally symmetrical. Not according to Picasso paintings, but go ahead. Indeed, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, we got um, generally the same on one side of the body and the other, and that's um, because you've got one set of genes that build both sides of your body, and another set of genes that says to your developing cells, "Hey, do this twice." 
and re- like reflect one side. Um, so the theory runs that uh, your genes are trying to build a thing that's symmetrical, mm-hmm. um, like when you're developing in the womb. But when you're in the womb, when you're developing as a fetus, there's all of this stuff that happens. Your mum's immune system is going crazy. There's parasites and all sorts of disease-causing stuff in there with you. And your immune system is going mental as well. And anything that disrupts you, anything that you can't cope with, is going to slightly disrupt your development into a symmetrical thing. Is the theory. Okay? Uh, so if you're... <laughs> Always a theory. Well, I mean, like a scientific theory, idea, like a yeah. solid so the, theory, or like a, that could be solid. a thing. So, uh... Which theory? <laughs> which, which, like the solid theory, or like the, I had an idea. It's a solid theory. It's a solid got theory, okay. Because yeah. you, you tossed it off like it was, oh, it was just a theory, and I was mm. like, wait a minute. Let's get <laughs> No, it's symmetry. So symmetry turns out to be important. People, val- people prefer symmetrical versions of faces, but nobody is perfectly symmetrical. So you can go too far on that. So if you present people with a perfectly, perfectly symmetrical face, they oh, look they're really scared. weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But so the, yeah. the closer you get to looking symmetrical, the better looking you are. Because people tell me that, I, like, they'll be like, you have a symmetrical face. I'm all like, mm. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, but this is like, just if you look at that in isolation, if you control everything else, if you just present people with two versions of, a, of the same face, but one is slightly more symmetrical than the other, people like the more symmetrical face. But, you know, when you meet people, they tend to be 3D, um, <laughs> and they tend to be doing stuff, and they speak, and, they, you know, so. Mm. But this is boring to you. I mean, it's like, okay, I no, do kind fine. of, I already know that, I mean, 2020 covered that in like 1998, yeah. etc. Like, we've kind of, we've, we've tread that, just as a society. Right. But then, this guy's face, like, lights up, just absolutely lights up when he's like, penguins, and <laughs> ooh, the animal kingdom, I'm like, do you know about sea slugs? And he's like, do I know about so, sea slugs? <laughs> so, 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 just, I mean, I'll let you answer, like, do, do penguins prefer s- the penguins prefer a penguin to look like a, like to be I am not aware of any penguin based evidence okay. <laughs> um, but macaques do no macaques little species of monkey we were right. just talking about monkeys back there right. macaques they dig symmetrical faces uh, chimpanzees do as well I think sheep might but I'm not sure <laughs> well uh, in Scotland you know it's just symmetrical sheep faces Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Thanks for that. You know, I googled sheep vagina recently. <laughs> Get in line. Get in line. Who hasn't done that? <laughs> because I've been having these people, like these people, like different people reference the fact that sheep genitalia looks so much like human genitalia and just jokes abound, etc. I, I know. But I didn't actually know what it looked like or vulvas. A sheep vulva. It just sounds weird. To, it feels weird to say that. Um, but... I could barely find any pictures. Like, it was all funny cartoons and things, and I was trying to just be like, what does it look like? I just want to be in the know. I want to be in the cool kids group that knows what this looks like. And I couldn't find... <laughs> I'm not very good at Googling. Anyway, continue. <laughs> Are we talking about sheep? So... So, so running back to penguins and... Penguins. And, and, and what, sloth, sloths or slugs or... Slugs. Yeah. Um, penguins. Yeah. So the fun thing about penguins... So what, the other thing that I'm, I've got sort of into is looking at... Um, uh, the evolution of human sexual orientation, that sort of thing. The evolution of uh, same-sex sexual behavior, brackets, homosexuality, if that's what you want to call it, whatever. Um, uh, and I got thinking about animal um, homosexuality, animal same-sex behavior. And there's this weird thing. A lot of zoos have gay penguins. Did you know? <laughs> Loads of zoos have gay penguins. It's like the zoos keep coming out as having gay penguins. <laughs> 
mostly they're male, um, and uh, they tend to, like, every breeding season, the male penguins, um, they, they court, because penguins tend to mate for life. Um, so they court each other, um, and... Um, hi. Sexually and socially? Uh... They're the same thing in penguins. Oh, okay. Because, I mean, some birds and they're like, no, whoa, the genes are like different, but they made it for life. Oh, okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they got all these, uh, the male penguins that seem to pair bond and they build nests together. And then there's some of them in Germany that tried to incubate stones, which is like heartbreaking because oh. they don't. Um, I know. Oh. Um, and there was a zoo. I cannot remember where it was. How frustrating. Anyway, one of the zoos, a few of them now, they give. Um, because another thing that uh, penguins tend to do is abandon their eggs. So um, zookeepers gave some of the gay penguins egg, uh, an egg to raise. Aww. That was lovely. And they raised it, and they're, they're, they're rearing a, a penguin, a gay penguin dad. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> I'm sure uh, the conservative penguins don't like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, another zoo, other zoos, uh, again, can't remember which one, awesome, came prepared, uh, separated their gay penguins. Yeah, and they got instantly accused of being homophobic. But here's the thing. The zoos are running penguin breeding programs. They need to make more penguins, because otherwise you run out of penguins, and that's bad. And they need their penguins to be mating, and gay penguins aren't going to produce offspring. So you can instantly say that there's something... Yeah, it feels very homophobic, but they do have a, there's a justification that they could raise on that. So, so my question is... Sorry to take over. Is it reasonable at all? The thing that got me thinking is, is it reasonable at all to call these things gay penguins? Because, hey, gay, that's a human category. That's a culturally specific term. Can you look at these things and say they're gay? But then again, penguin is a culturally specific human term as well. So you get into holes. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, is this a hand? We just call it a hand. <laughs> like, Sorry, I had like a drug flashback moment. Um... <laughs> I mean, okay, you separate the gay penguins, put them with the girl penguins. Do they then mate with the girl? They're like, oh, girls! I like girls, too! Yeah, they like so, that? So, so the penguins aren't technically homosexual. They're bisexual, then, right? I don't know about the particular penguins. Yes, right. Yeah, but again, these are human categories, right? We, so we, we divide people up into homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual. Um, and you look at the literature on animal homosexuality and the things that people use to define homosexuality in animals. Because mm-hmm. in science, they talk about homosexual behavior, not gay behavior. But you look at the things that they use to define it. So like in, um, in the penguins, it's pair bonding behavior. It's the same in seagulls, which can turn... Uh, the females can uh, start long-term pair bonded relationships. In some animals, it's m- sexual mounting. Um, in chimpanzees, it's genital-genital rubbing. Um, in gibbons, it was uh, mounting by two males with ejaculation. In bedbugs, it's like evidence of scarring from something awesome, not awesome, called traumatic insemination, which we'll come back to if you want (laughs) the point is that there's all these different definitions for homosexuality in animals we're not talking about the same thing because they're different species so it's weird are you saying that in bed bugs if there's traumatic insemination which sounds traumatic Mm. but it's male female then it's just fine so my (laughs) ex-wife sounds political my my ex-wife was a bed bug then is that what she was (laughs) Shall I tell you about traumatic insemination? Do you want to know? Yeah. Okay, so male bedbugs, they have these really, 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 really pointy, sharp penises. Um, the females do have genital openings, but the males have decided, fuck that. And they just, um, although not literally, they just go in straight through the exoskeleton. Whatever part of the female bedbug they can reach, they go in and they dump sperm straight into her bloodstream. Whoa. 
the thing faces. is, though, I see faces. <laughs> that because that's not dependent on the existence of female genitals, male bedbugs tend to grab anything that looks like a bedbug and stab it. Um, and so you find evidence of, uh, of being inseminated on the female bedbugs in scarring on their exoskeleton, but you find it on the males as well. So it's like bedbugs just whatever that looks like a bedbug. Go. And then there's other things. Things have evolved as like counter strategies because it's not great to be pierced by a penis. Um, if you're a bedbug, pierced like through the outside. Anyway, whatever. Okay, when I was growing up, I don't know about you. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you out there. I, I learned that, you know, there's a mama dolphin and a daddy dolphin. And then there's a baby dolphin. And everybody, it's a happy family. But it's interesting that as you get older and take college classes and, and read things and National Geographic, you learn that, like, I don't know, the animal kingdom has such odd, interesting worlds. Dolphins of- are vicious. <laughs> Do they try and hump people when they're... Yeah. Like, ah, that's right, I've heard yeah. that. But, I mean, I, I know they're promiscuous. It's mm. fascinating because they're one of the few species that are, like, truly promiscuous. Like, for, they mate um. for pleasure. Mm. Uh, what? What are you judgy? <laughs> I don't know, that sex for pleasure thing comes up a lot People say that like, humans are the only species that have sex for pleasure That's a really odd thing to say Given that lots of animals do it And pleasure is a really basic motivating drive So you might expect most things that have sex Would probably enjoy sex Otherwise it's a big waste of time As far as the animal is concerned I've thought about that yeah. it's, it's always never unless, they, well, unless all the other animals in the world are thinking Hmm, this is how I make more bedbugs <laughs> you know, Presumably, the male bedbugs like that I don't hmm. know um, it's not an intellectual process. Yeah. So, yeah, so pleasure would be sort of a basic reward principle. But then sex for pleasure is this uh, a thing, yeah, it connects into the idea of homosexuality. Uh, things having sex that isn't reproductive, that is presumably mm-hmm. just for pleasure. Loads of things do that. Loads, pretty much everything. Like same-sex sexual behavior has been observed in pretty much every vertebrate species that people have cared to look uh, and some invertebrate species too. Um, and things like bonobos, there are lots of primates. Bonobos, another species of chimpanzee, they go at it all the time. All the time, in all sorts of configurations. The most popular form of bonobo sex is female female sex, then male female, and then male male sex. I didn't realize female sex. female was more common. Oh, yeah. Oh. They do genital genital rubbing and stuff. The males do penis jousting. Um, bonobos are awesome. So you see all the other, all the other monkeys like um, penis jousting. Yeah. You, do you wanna, oh, I, we, I, I do it all the time. Okay. I didn't know bonobos did it. So. I just love that he put his fists above his head and did like That's a, what they do. I did that. Okay, yeah. Context. They hang from trees when they do it. Oh, okay. I thought you were... Sorry. There was a... There was a dance. There was a dance party at the Woodhull Sexual Freedom Summit last night, and so we were all running around at the photo booth and the dance party. And so I actually got to see you cut a rug, and you were doing that yeah. specifically. Yeah, yeah. Like my work is my life. <laughs> so the fact that oh, the context being your uh, pantomiming branches is like a likely story, guy. Likely story. That's so funny. Um, I imagine that males tend to, in the animal kingdom, just sort of mount, and there isn't a whole lot of... Oh, I guess there's mating dances. I mean, how... It seems like it's coercive sex most of the time in the animal kingdom, Mm. but I haven't studied it. Sure. So there are... um uh, a lot of species are seasonal breeders or the females come into what we call estrus when they're uh, sexually receptive. And you can tell estrus, which it's like, it's linked to ovulation, uh, which is a concept I'm sure you know about, a female 
We've got some eggs in the room. (laughs) Um, But oestrus is like a behavioural thing that associates with ovulation. It's not quite the same thing. Okay. So it's when females seem to suddenly become much more uh, what we call proceptive, when they suddenly start uh, presenting towards males or advertising their fertility. Um, And then males go a bit crazy and... The whole sorry business goes on and on. Oh, oh, that's lovely. (laughs) Are scientists... Now, I mean, we have our certain biases that we bring to the table when it comes to to studying. And so, I mean, when it comes to the animal kingdom, are you finding that now sexuality... I mean, because to even say, like, there are homosexual penguins. I mean, that's just... Does everyone seem on board? Like, is anyone fighting? Like, no, they're monogamous. The end. No, no. No. Are you, or is everybody else like, see a therapist, bro? Like that? <laughs> no, I think it's, it's like, uh, it's when you say to people, uh, hey, look, we're using human categories to define a non-human thing. We're talking about these things being homosexual or indeed being male or female. These are categories that, that humans have drawn, boxes humans have drawn around things. And the mm-hmm. thing about nature, the really fun thing about nature, <gasps> is that nature does not give a toss what we think it should be doing. <laughs> So humans develop all these wonderful systems and the, these paradigms for looking at things that are reliant on things fitting in boxes. Species terms are a big one of this. We think animals seem to divide really nicely into species, but we can't agree on what a definition of a species actually is. Mm-hmm. And then we think species shouldn't be able to interbreed. Hey, they can, and they do quite often. Mm-hmm. And that's an important method of mechanism of evolutionary change, so things are stressful and complex. Okay. Ah, nature, okay. Um, On that note, guys, so I know you don't know what we're here for. I mean, you know that we're here for a podcast, whatever, because what we're doing. We've talked about animal sex, right? It's easy to study animals and to kind of go, okay, that's them. But when it comes to ourselves, it tends to get a lot muddier, right? I mean, you're um, more... What is... The difference between a biological anthropologist and a cultural anthropologist? Uh, they have really uh, quite a lot of fights in public. Mm-hmm. <gasps> oh! um, we're going to get on. We'll be fine. Um, uh, what's the big difference? The big difference, really big difference, is that biological anthropologists um, think that before a human is anything else, really, a human is um, another species of animal. And that you can ask questions about a human that you could ask about any other species. So you want to know how big they are on average, what their mating system is, what they look like. Mm-hmm. You can ask any question that you could ask about things. Um, sociocultural anthropologists don't like that so much, and they look more at humans as a cultural thing first. Mm-hmm. What humans are first is a cultural entity. Uh, in the middle, there's some really interesting playing to be done, but... Yeah. I'm really excited about that because we're about to bring on a cultural anthropologist and we're about to fight and throw down. <laughs> it's going to get crazy in here. Watch out. Okay, so, really, yes, animals, fascinating. We could talk a long time, get into uh, the textbooks and be like, what? Oh my God, that's crazy. What? And, and FYI, sea slugs, yeah, they have like crazy orgies, lots of penis stabbings as well. What? What? I'm sorry, yes. what? It was a lot. <laughs> Tell me about the sea slug orgy really, really quick. Just there are sea slug orgies. They like they pile on to yeah, each other. Yeah, it's just a Bonobos, the chimpanzee thing. They do orgies too. Lots of orgies going on. In I the haven't been invited people. to one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, we have the author of a book that was just released called "Playing Well with Others." Um, 
cultural anthropologist and a fabulous human being, Dr. Catherine Frank. Could you please come up to the stage? Oh, there you are. Hi, Kate. Yes. It actually plays well in groups. Oh, okay. Because if you're looking... No, no, no. Say the things. Plays well in groups is the name. Not plays well with others. But it's about group sex around the world. It's about group sex, guys. She did. If any of you are, are how many of you are fans of Sex at Dawn? Well, this is a podcast. They're all raising their hands. No, no, get on board. Um, so this is the kind of book uh, what has just been released that I feel is important in the same way that Sex at Dawn is important. Um, in, in just bringing... You brought so much research to the table for this book. I was looking through on Amazon, reading the research and the, the reviews and everything that you've done. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this book that you released? Sure. Um, it was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't even realize how big the project was going to get. Um, and I'm one of the culture anthropologists who does think that we are an animal. Um, and I just happen to ask different questions usually. So I do think that... Um, I looked some at the biological underpinnings and some in the animal world um, or the different animal world. Um, Can you guys hear her okay? No? No, okay. Okay. Sorry. So, Mike, truly close to your mouth. Okay. Like, sorry. Like, almost improper how close this to your mouth. Okay. Like, like, like I'm, my lip is touching the microphone. Like, I'm... Okay, got it. Just, I'm I'm foreplaying with the microphone. Um, I usually have those on your shirt. uh, Anyway, so this book... um, I really wanted to look at why group sex was so emotionally and symbolically powerful for humans. It's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, something that's happened throughout history. It's happened across cultures. Um, and it's always been taboo. The taboo doesn't seem to lift. It lifts in certain little enclaves for short amounts of time, but mm-hmm. it's still very meaningful. Um, it may, at root, have reproductive aspects to it, but... For me, what was interesting is all the meanings that people put onto it. So people believe that it does more, that more is going on than having sex to produce, right? To reproduce, I mean. Right, um, what is sex for? Is it just for reproduction or what are the other implications of why we have sex? Right, all the other meanings people give to it. So I'm excited because I was looking through the beginning of her book and I mean, because you're studying history, you're studying context right now. And the very first part of it is this kind of narrative of her exploration through Black Rock City, which is Burning Man, mm-hmm. um, in search of the Orgy Dome. Um, and if you listen to the Getting Late at Burning Man episode, we actually had... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Laszlo on. Hey, you, you're a burner. I went to Burning Man this year and last year. My second burners, shout out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, of course, just one context. And I didn't get to go this year, so I didn't actually get to go see the Orgy Dome. It's like a funny sex ed field trip. I, we know? had someone in our camp try to, try to find the Orgy Dome and eventually found the Orgy Dome. And his observation was, uh, let's see, about 700 dudes <laughs> and three women. So yeah. <laughs> They don't even they don't let dudes in, though. Uh, well, that's, that, that, that's what oh. he told us. He may have been making... He may have been high. Uh, he never tight, found so, it. Yeah, he no, found no. something else. Yeah, that sounds... <laughs> no, you know what? That sounds like... That sounds like he found the, the gay orgy dome. Yeah, maybe. 
may have done that. Because yeah. they have those too. Yeah, yes, they do. Yeah. If you're not in the know, the Orgy Dome is um, an air-conditioned safe haven for people who want to hook up at Burning Man, and they have little baby wipes and safe sex materials, and it's, it's all these domes that are connected at Burning Man, which is a dust-infused party zone slash artistic space. Yay! Um, festival in the desert. And you need to bring sunscreen and water. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but yes, yeah, so it's exciting that you started there. But uh, how long has this journey taken for you to study basically group sex and orgies? Um, well, it's been... that This book I wrote almost full-time for about three years. But before that, I've, I've been an anthropologist now since maybe 1999. I got my PhD from mm-hmm. Duke. And my first research was on strip clubs and the male customers of strip clubs. So why they went... Um, and I worked as a stripper and interviewed the customers. So I did that for a while. And is then I is started... my name in the index of your book? I'm going to make sure. <laughs> no it? names. No good? names. Okay. <laughs> um, and then I started studying monogamy, and I wrote about that for a while. And the turn to looking at group sex was sort of one of those conversations with a biological anthropologist where we were just hashing out ideas <gasps> over alcohol one night. It wasn't him, but someone in his, he, close to his field. Jamie raised his hand. I pointed at him. <laughs> but... Yeah, so I wanted to do something broader, and I wanted to look at something that um, really involved... It involved every discipline. I had to go into history, religion, uh, anthropology, psychology, biology, everything I could imagine. Okay. So So I'm excited because I only have two contexts for modern-day groups, orgies, in, in just my own experience of talking to people. There's the swingers... And then there's the, <laughs> and then there's the kind of tantra, new age, everyone's a goddess mm-hmm. situation, and I tend to feel more comfortable in that space uh, because there are not as many people staring you down. Um, I mean, the swingers are, are lovely, um, but like there's just there's a lot more of like just hugs and like. Snacks. <laughs> like just sort of everyone has a, snacks. Everyone has that. That's true. That's Even true. fruit flies have snacks. They bring snacks. What? <laughs> Wait, really? No. Uh, so uh, apparently, so. group sex has to be catered. Or is it- <laughs> <laughs> right, make sure. Yeah. It's important. So I mean, that's and I mean, I've noticed between the two groups there, there are some differences in terms of um, aim, um, but. <laughs> This is my life. Um, but what have you felt like? Why? Hmm. I mean, when someone says orgy or group sex, it it's so often, especially just in just groups of friends in, in modern times. I don't have a time machine, so modern times now. Um, people just kind of go, oh, like, oh, getting laid. Like, what? what? Like, what's that? Like, everyone has sex. Everyone has sex. Like, like is, what is, like, define orgy. Like, what is an orgy? Okay, sure. Well, let me just say before... That, that I looked at those two groups. Those are two groups that I look at in the book. But I also looked at, uh, say, gay guys using bathhouses. I looked at um, uh, gang rape around the world, mm-hmm. group rape, uh, violent group sex. Um, there's a lot of the same meanings are coming out um, in terms of being witnessed in transgressive activity. So I looked at violence. Um, I looked at tribal rituals that, uh, you know, historically... Um, I looked at sex parties in different countries where people didn't necessarily consider themselves lifestyle or swingers, but they okay. were still having group sex. I looked at people on Craigslist hooking up without an identity who were having group sex. So I looked at all kinds of different settings, not just the party enclaves you think about first, right? So, well, so within all of these different groups, 
did you notice a difference in terms of meaning of what the orgy, like how does the orgy or group sex experience fit in to, to these different groups? Like, like what does it mean to have a, a gang rape? Like what does it mean to that culture when that happens to that group of people who are participating in that versus like an orgy uh, with swingers or a Craigslist ad? I mean, I figure part of it's just adventure. Yay, more things. But is it more than just that? Well, it's, that was one of the things that fascinated me is that people believe it's, it's more than sex is going on, right? There's hierarchies, there's power coming out. Um, there's ways that people are taking turns and negotiating what's going to happen. One thing, the, the idea of the orgy, people think about an orgy and they think about a free-for-all, right? Clothes are flying and people are just down with whoever walks up next. And that's never how it unfolds. No. There's always a system of rules. Wait a minute. Sorry. What do you guys think of when you think of orgy? Just yell it out. Fun. Fun. <laughs> Boobs. Lube. 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 Yeah. Lots of lube. <laughs> Options. Options. Dental dams. <laughs> You've learned well. <laughs> um, what else? Legs everywhere. Legs everywhere. Just like ah. Yeah. That's what I... What? Waiting lines. Waiting lines? <gasps> wait, wait. Wait, wait. There's, there's like a velvet rope outside the... Wait, come here. Is this... A, is this... You. You with the cool shirt. Wait, is this a personal experience or is this just a thing you think of? Oh, it's a personal... Well, waiting lines. Waiting lines is a personal experience. Uh-huh. You know. Like where there's somebody if, if there's who's... somebody who's already busy, you know... You wait until they're not busy. Like the gym? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, cool. Like, like t- towel down after? Huh, what? I said gym isn't that popular. Gym isn't that popular. <laughs> I guess Disneyland. Okay, cool. I'm just curious. wanted to, you know, understand the room, etc. What do you think about all this that what they just said? Well, I think that... Um, Certainly waiting in lines is one of the things I was talking about, right? I mean, I'm saying that there are, there are rules to how it unfolds. People don't just necessarily jump in. That's not necessarily what they want. So, so what, 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 what are the general rules to an orgy that most people, would, most people in the lifestyle would agree upon? Which, what are the ones that, you, that tend to come up? Because I've also, on the podcast, like, I've talked about like, rules and negotiations and things. Like, we've kind of covered like, basics, but in a broader sense, this is really interesting. Like, yeah. What have you noticed since you... That might be surprising. You know, across cultures and in all different kinds of groups, I mean, one of the main things that people will do is they manage their visibility. So very rarely would you walk into an orgy and walk into the middle of the sex or the wildest sex. Like you just trip over the person, right? So um, bathhouses and sex clubs are set up a particular way in every country that you go to. Um, You can get maps of them, and they're set up so that you have like a social zone when you first enter, and then you cross a threshold into a more sexual zone. That can also be done through time. Like at midnight, this room turns into an orgy room, and Mm -hmm. at that point in time, everyone has to transition by taking off clothes or doing something else. So gay or straight or, you know, Africa, Asia, wherever they take place, there are certain ways people organize their activities so that... You're not going to walk right in. You're going to have sort of an easing into any sexual activity. And then there are different ways they negotiate what they want and what they're prepared to enter into. So whether that's through words or through how they dress, um, where they position themselves in the room, if they're waiting in line, 
Uh, that means they are interested later. If they're just a voyeur, they may be positioned along the outer skirt. I feel like there needs to be an orgy dance card so there's not so wine, like, like lines, like, you know, or like someone's clapping. Yeah. I was just going to um, uh, talk about um, uh, power. That's came up. And um, uh, I wasn't expecting to have to do this now. I'm going to do this now. Uh, but, uh, group sex, bonobos, that was what I was going to say. Bonobos, they do the group sex thing. They have the orgies as well, right? So they have these great big uh, collective sex moments, but it's not unstructured. Uh, bonobos are often presented as being this amazing uh, make love not war ape um, but it's really heavily structured what they do they exchange sex for something and the thing they exchange sex for is um, that the uh, dominant animal uh, will let them eat sooner than they would otherwise or let them do something or so sexual favors get exchanged up the hierarchy and sometimes because uh, they're strongly hierarchical animals they exchange uh, the dominance will give sexual favors to animals beneath them in the hierarchy mm-hmm. in order to make them uh, whatever happy whatever so even in um group sex situations in the animal kingdom d- dominance power is a, a thing that you can, you can consider okay oh. is it okay that i'm calling you okay yes yes please that's fine. okay do humans do the same thing? As far as exchanging sex for other things? Certainly. Well, I mean, in terms of, like, oh, yeah, like, it, oh, no, so, you know, you uh, go and, like, Bob and Martha are having an orgy. It's swinger time. Like, we're all going to come over and have an orgy. Like, we're all part, we've all met on Lifestyle Lounge and, you know, as a party tonight. Does that power, like, what is the power dynamic of, let's say, a swinger event? Well, it could get... It could get really complicated. I mean, if you start to think about, um, you know, who is allowed to make the decision of which couple they're going to be with, right? I mean, there can be power going on in the couple who's trying to decide who they're going to engage with. There can be power going on in terms of who has more, more opportunities, who has more choices, what type of space they're going to. So, I mean, there's all different... There's clubs, there's parties, there's a whole hierarchy um, in terms of how much it costs to get in, what if you have to apply? It's for gay guys too. It's the same thing. So, <laughs> what about attractive level, like level of attractiveness? Now you notice that there is like this sort of like no one wants to really talk about it, but like, like the ho- classically hotter couples and the newbies. Oh, like the fresh meat. Somebody just yelled newbies. Uh, fresh meat newbie. But like, yeah, that seems to be a thing at play. Does that seem to be something that comes up? Because it's like you, no one really wants to talk about it, but you kind of... You think about why newbies might be popular. Who was that? Who said newbies? Newbies. Why they might be popular? Because you get to teach them the rules, yeah? So that's you putting, you know, you get to teach them something. That's a power exchange as well. Uh, why are attractive people popular? Maybe they look powerful. Maybe they are more experienced. Maybe they can teach you something. something right, like... and then the newbie would have power because hmm. they offer novelty, right? Yeah. That Absolutely. will wear off after a while. Um, yeah. So certainly, there's a lot going on. <laughs> oh. So now that I both have you with microphones, <laughs> I want you guys to talk about something. The biological... Possi- okay, because like, a lot of people will uh, get mad at evolutionary psychology. Like You mentioned that you have a background in, in studying evolution. But the biological foundations of group sex, like sperm competition, like for instance, and whatnot, but in human contexts. Go, fight. <laughs> I don't know, fight. Uh, I didn't end this call, huh? <laughs> um, sperm competition. You said a lot of things. Um, I do that. 
So, uh, human mating strategy, I guess? Well, I mean, I talked about sperm competition yeah. in the book because a lot of more mainstream writing on swinging has looked at it as an explanation. Okay. And a hot wifing or things like that, which also involve like, um, kind of a cuckold fantasy or a man whose wife's cheating on him, wife or partner. So some people have said that sperm competition is a good way to explain these things. Um, and you can do the biology part okay. on explaining that, but... Um, <laughs> To me, it didn't offer a full enough explanation. I can say why, but why don't you... Okay. Should we talk about sperm competition? Do you want to know? Is that a thing? I love competition. So, organizing thoughts quickly. So, yeah, so evolution... Right, if evolution is going to take place, um, uh, you have to reproduce. Uh, Genes have to be transmitted, um, which means that in evolutionary terms, there's everything to play for for getting your genes in combination with somebody else's genes in in ruthless evolutionary terms, Okay. Um, uh, and when uh, reproductive sex takes place and we should come back to the idea of reproductive sex at some point, but okay when reproductive sex takes place, you get sperm meeting egg um, if there's only two uh, peop- two individuals involved in that exchange, then there's not much to it, uh, uh, a male and a female get together um, in a monogamous system, they have sex the male sperm meets the female egg if the female is mating with more than one male if you've got a polyandrous system or any sort of multi-male, multi-female breeding system, suddenly there's more um, uh, sperm involved. Okay, more males. Yeah. Yay. I know this, this conversation gets... gets yeah, just... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry about this. So there's more sperm deposited inside the female. Right? So those sperm which belong to a particular male carry a particular male's genetic code have to compete with each other. Because the first sperm... The egg will only take one, normally... So the first sperm that makes that race wins. Um, One of the ways that males can compete with each other, if there's more males to compete with, and I'm sorry about this image, is by quite literally swamping the competition. (laughs) Males produce more sperm than each other. So you get in systems where... Where males are uh, mating with multiple females. Uh, sorry, when females are mating with multiple males, where that happens, you tend to get males with really, really big testicles. Like chimpanzees, <laughs> which they're like snooker balls, okay? <laughs> Chimpanzee testicles are the biggest testicles for body size in the primate world. Oh, sorry. <laughs> someone, asked, someone asked what snooker is. <laughs> Pool, sorry. They're like ball balls. That doesn't sound as good. <laughs> they're like snooker balls. Ping pong balls. Table tennis? I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> Billiards, yeah. So, yeah, there you are. Um, uh, shall I stop talking about that now? Well, Wait, so I think there's been some studies that showed in human, that in humans, humans who viewed images of more multiple men and one woman had higher sperm counts, higher mobile sperm counts. Um, so there's some, some evidence for that, and that evidence has been taken up by some of the researchers um, or some people who just wanted to write about hot wifing or lifestyle without all of the negative stigma to try to say often there, there could be a real, you know, natural reason for this. People love to think that their sexual behavior is natural. Um, All right, so what was the most surprising, what was the thing that surprised you the most about group sex in human beings? What, what, what's floored you? What made you go, really? Holy crap, I didn't know that. Right. Or what, 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 what basically, you know, 
made you say I, I, I did that didn't surprise me at all I, I came into that with that theory and that's exactly what what bore out okay great well um, let me just say one last thing on the sure, um, sperm sorry. competition thing because I just wanted to make the point that well it could be part of the explanation this is sort of why I went to a cultural level it could be and for some people it certainly does seem to be motivating they like to see men like to see their partner with lots of other men or are turned on by the idea. There's some men like Hugh Hefner who's always kicked men out of his bedroom. He doesn't seem to be motivated at all by sperm competition. Mm-hmm. In fact, he likes to gather women around. So whether people who's involved in those groups, those groups take so many different forms. Wait a minute. But that would mean that he was competing and winning, right? Because he could kick all the guys out of the room and have all the women, so he's a winner? Does that sound, sounds like winning in the competition sense <laughs> so, of the... If you look at the sperm competition thing, so chimpanzees, right, they have these great big balls for their body size, right? Gorillas on the other end of the spectrum where males, uh, females mate with one male, who's their, like, their dominant, they've got teeny tiny testicles. They're really small. Also, adult male gorillas, two centimeter penis when erect. Yeah? Isn't that weird? Two centimeters. Anyway, that's a different sort of conversation. Yeah. Um, Do you use centimeters? Was that okay? Okay. Um, uh, humans. I do. I use centimeters. <laughs> humans are somewhere in between uh, chimpanzee and gorilla as far as testicle size goes. We're not quite as adapted to sperm competition as a chimpanzee, but much more so than a gorilla. So there's evidence for some level. We might expect some psychological adaptations towards multiple matings. Great, so you get a bunch of people in a room together, and so we're like deeply just, is that the explanation for group sex, is we just deeply need to have as much sperm competing for the strongest bib is? Like, is that? Well, no, I don't even think we need to ask, I mean, someone else can ask that question. That's not a question I wanted to ask. Okay. I mean, it, it's that's just a little, could be a little part of the story, but I think, uh, you know, that there's all these ways that people make it more than about reproduction. No matter what their bodies are doing, they think they're doing other things, so... For, throughout history, there have been times where group sex became involved in religious rituals, for example, um, or where it became involved in polit- politics. So you had the 1970s in the U.S. where group sex got linked to ideas of overthrowing capitalism, overthrowing the patriarchy, all of these um, different beliefs that group sex, having group sex doing something that transgressive could actually change the world, right? Wow. So people deep. gave it a lot of meaning, whether or not it actually did anything. I mean, in some situations, you can say there was some. There have been changes, right, from the sexual revolution. But I will say that I have a. Lo- I mean, in my f- my friends on Facebook, I have like people who are more. Oh, I respect tantra as a practice. Uh, some people, it's a lifestyle. But I get a lot of Facebook invites to events where it's tonight. Let's honor the gods, or let's honor the goddesses, and we're gonna. Like just change the world through our juicy, juicy prayer through each other. So I like the, like the euphemisms for this, like the sexy time. I'm just like, no, no, ah, just say it. I just I'm like, but it's there is such high aspirations for the event, and, yes. and I personally am a bit turned off because it's. Like if they, I'm not sure if they're just afraid Facebook's going to shut them down or if they actually are meaning to use that kind of flowery language. Like It's pretty deep. Um, ooh, I'm being really judgy right now. Sorry, guys. It happens sometimes. Well, one of the things that I was actually surprised about, to go back to Sean's question, was um, 
how many different practices people put up as being the one practice that was going to get us to transcendence, to get us to this next either religious space or political space, right? So there was a guy who wrote about fisting. Fisting was the way to, you know, find God. And then there's a woman who... What's that? Wait, was that the book called Trust? No, there's probably more than one. What is this book about fisting and, like, world peace? Um, I, I can get you the. <laughs> it was Purusha. And um, then there were others who wrote about double penetration is the path to enlightenment, or, you know, not choosing your own partner, or having sex at a particular time in a, a certain way. So there's always there's hopes that having sex in a certain way will get us somewhere. Um, there's some people who think that monogamy will get us somewhere too, right? So there's a lot of hope placed into sex that is going to get us to the kind of life or the kind of culture that we want. Um, and sometimes we place a lot, way too much hope into it, but we also place way too much fear into it. So, so, so in other words, I mean, we, most of us, some of us may have grown up in a culture in which it was difficult to talk about sex, and your findings are that in many ways it's still difficult to talk about sex without connecting it to this kind of language. Is it? Um, well, I don't know about the, the language. Yeah, 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 certainly. I mean, and, but I don't even think that's just our culture. I mean, every culture has... Well, I don't want to generalize too much, but we are humans, and humans distinguish between themselves and others through like shame, guilt, disgust, even if they're ex- expressed differently in different places, right? So one thing I never found was a culture I'd say was 100% sex positive. Um, that's my opinion, but I read a lot of history. I read nonstop everywhere I could find, and there's always going to be some beliefs about that Either sex is a little bit dirty or it can only be done this particular way. I mean, even places that supposedly had the most open sexual cultures, you, you read a little deeper and you find, like, but they killed a baby if it wasn't, you know, between the people who were in the same social class. Or, really? Yeah, I mean, so there's always, if you look deep enough, there, there's usually some beliefs that are a little bit negative there, too. And I think that's because it's a very powerful thing. It's a very mm-hmm. powerful action. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do surround it by fear, and it's about the boundaries between ourselves and other people. What about... Okay, there was a quote in the review, and I was like, what? Where it said that, that group sex is often considered transgressive. Like, it just generally tends to be across the board in, in different cultures. But at the same time, the effects of it are surprisingly culturally... Um, are, Conservative, like the social norms it entrenches in the group that's doing it is conservative. Like, so is there a strong sense of like keep like there's just there's a lot of peer pressure to be a certain way if you're part of a group that does that? Or I was confused by that that it's right. so conservative yet transgressive at the same time. And I think there I was looking at about at a social level, for example. So I look a lot at these political movements around the world where you know sex becomes a means to sort of overthrow something or create a better culture. I mean, even someone like the Marquis de Sade, he thought you would create a different world by liberating sexuality. Um, And a lot of thinkers have really believed that sex was kind of a key to changing, changing the world, changing social systems, changing hierarchies and all of that. Um, Sometimes I do think those changes can happen, but I just, I don't think it's always so easy, right? So you had free love and the hippies and certainly things changed. Um, since the 1970s. But have they changed that much? Now we have gigantic lifestyle parties where people pay a lot of money to go. They're very much intertwined with capitalism, not necessarily separate from it. I like getting inappropriately close to you. I'm leaning in for her microphone. We're in Washington, D.C. right now. 
I've heard, rumor on the street is, there is a significant amount of action, actually, in this city in regards to BDSM parties and swinger parties. Is that... I don't know about compared to other cities. Like I know there is, but maybe there are, there are in, in all the cities. I, I mean, have you noticed that? I mean, I think there's something going on everywhere nowadays. There's a there's a lot going on, um, and so there. Sorry, guys. <laughs> not just clubs. I mean, there'll be some places where clubs would be more underground, but there's also traveling parties for adults, um, for gay, straight, young people. Uh, segregate by age or class or race. Um, at one point in the book, I listed sort of a random selection of parties from the U.S. or San Francisco and New York. And I mean, you Memo can find to self. even Pick like, up this book immediately. <laughs> you know, there could be a party for like mixed race men between 25 and 28, you know, and they could be very specific or it could be more open, you know, you know, open invitation or open door policies. It's so. pretty exciting. I mean, I'm curious. I, I don't know. It's because I have such a limited scope in terms of what group sex is available to the human, let's say, on this continent. In terms of, like, what for people who are just in, let's say, the U.S. What I mean is it swinging, uh, tantra, and spiritually related group sex? I mean, what I mean, and then Craigslist be like, hey, meet at my house. Here's the address. Everyone show up. Like, what what are the options if people want to explore group sex? I mean, that's not really my um, goal. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I don't want to lead. I'm not leading anyone down a path. Or, um, I mean, I was really sort of trying to look at beyond these enclaves, what do they all have in common? So I think that my approach to it all was to sort of say, look at all these different places you find people having group sex in their college dorm. I mean, you could go to college, you know, college oh, campus right. and find it happening. <laughs> Uh, so when Dave and I, Dave was the co-host that I had for a long while. Yay. Say hi to Dave. We went to Vassar College and, and, and taught some classes and you did some stand-up. And they had, like, orgies in their dorms and stuff. And, like, the invites were, like, in their mailboxes and things. Like, and they have a sex tree. Vassar College has a sex tree with a weeping willow that comes down to the ground so you can just sneak inside the tree and totally do it. (laughs) Right, so I was kind of looking at, so why is it happening in all these different spaces and why does it always kind of have that edge of being exciting or bad or different, right? It is always transgressive. Even in communities where it becomes more commonplace, Sometimes people would just leave when because it would get boring, right? I mean, when the novelty wears off, when you've transgressed all of your taboos, you move on to other taboos if you're a transgressor, right? So, 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 so has that borne out historically, meaning that during times, during very conservative eras, uh, group sex was much more rampant than more progressive or liberal eras? eras? Well, one thing I thought, I thought was interesting, I mean, I couldn't study, you know, people from the ancient you know, ancient times or anything. But one thing that I noticed was that it did remain transgressive at a social level. It, there's, there's nowhere that I've been able to find where it's just normal, right. where people don't care one way or another. Usually, even people who have a lot of group sex, they care that they're having it. They're not like a dog who just, like, humps his little pillow or his friend in front of you, right? They care if someone's watching. It means a lot. Um, so even in those communities where people have a lot of it and they're used to it, it means something to them to be doing it that way. Um, That's really cool. I never thought about it, but yeah. Like, so there's just nowhere where it's like, no. because I also, I tweeted, if anyone follows me on Twitter or Facebook, I tweeted that this weekend I walked in on my friend having sex and it was totally normal. 
Um, which doesn't mean it doesn't mean that I was like, "What's up, Bob?" And he's like, "What's up?" It was more like, "Oh, hey, do you? Am I? I need to do a thing." And they were like, "No, it's fine." I'm like, "Are you sure? This is kind of weird. I gotta get a thing." And so, like, it wasn't that it was totally no big deal. It was, and I was a little like, but it wasn't like shame. Like, no one was shame filled. It was more like awkward, you know. But it's okay. <laughs> Exactly. And that watching or having someone see you, I mean, it can actually impact your identity. So that's what we found also, you know, that um, so for a gay guy in the 1970s, when there's no gay male culture in a small town, can go to a bathhouse in a huge city and see other men having sex, that that was a very powerful emotional experience. You find swingers talking about that, too, that it was a very powerful emotional experience. Um, At the same time, if it's violence, if it's an act of violence, it can be really again, powerful, but in a really negative identity-shattering way. Yeah, I I just wanted to sort of reconnect to something that came up earlier when we were talking about sperm competition, and you started um, talking about sperm competition as a thing that people need, right? And that's that's not quite how that works. We've got aspects of our body that are, and apparently our psychology, that are consistent with sperm competition having taken place in our evolutionary past. So that's a thing that biological anthropologists are interested in, is the sort of animal that we were 200,000 years ago when we first evolved in Africa. And it looks as if, from what we can see of ourselves now, that animal was having some sort of multiple sex situation, that the females at least are having sex with multiple male partners. Group sex situation, who knows, whatever. But then, so you've got that. So that's sort of uh, something that sculpted some aspect of human sexual experience, evolutionary history. But what sex means to people, that's a different question. That's a, that's a biological, cultural, anthropology divide. That's why we're not fighting. Exactly. <laughs> we just and ask different questions. Yeah, we're not fighting. Absolutely. And there it is. Oh, I like how you just tied it up in a little bow and like, and that's where I end and she begins. Absolutely. You know? Really wanted you guys to get emotional and like throw things or something. Yeah, that's fine. It's cool. I have like a, a Volvo puppet back here. I was hoping they'd like start beating each other with it or something, but no, it's fine. Uh, the night is young. It's true. Also, if anyone wants to hang out after the show, I'm sure like they're gonna kick us out at some point after the show, and like I'll hang out in there. So you know, just so you know, because I forgot to tell you that. So like. Hang out with And P.S. The New York crowd We totally like Ended up having a dance party So They're not really Bumping it in there So I don't know If we'll do that But <laughs> FYI That was hilarious Um Oh my god There's so much That just There's so many things I kind of uh, I kind of want to Open up to questions And things I feel like Alright, you naughty monkeys. I'll see you next week for part two of this episode. Go Team Fun. Now leaving Nerdist.com.